Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Hey, good morning, everybody. I, uh, my wife and I are both glad to be here. We have a, uh, a bunch of kids that aren't with us, and so um, it's like a little date weekend for us here in Austin, Texas, uh, which is really kind of fun. Hey, uh, how about I pray for, for your pastor and for our time this morning um, as we gather together. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for this church and these people here this morning. And Father, we together lift up uh, their pastor, Matt, today. And Father, I just pray over him now that even today you would restore his soul. Father, as he does the diligent work of shepherding this body of believers. Father, we just lift him up to you and pray replenishment over him uh, and restoring over him. Father, I pray over your word today that as we look in it, that you would teach us about your goodness, Lord. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, it is really fun to be here. I'm not going to gloat about LSU because next week it could be a different story. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, I want you to know uh, it is a cool thing to be able to open God's word with you all today. Um, when I was asked to come speak, I was like, you know what, I might as well speak out of my favorite book in the Bible, which is Galatians. So if you would, if you'd open to the book of Galatians or if you turn to it on your phone uh, or whatever you, however you look at it, I just kind of want to jump into this and then uh, and I'll unpack it as we go. But in case you don't know much about the book of Galatians, it's a letter written by a guy named Paul to some churches in an area called Galatia. And um, one of the things I probably like about this book is how direct it is. And how Paul really nails people to the wall. If you're anything like me, he nails me to the wall in a book like this. Um, but it's just kind of very direct. So if we were to back up, I'm going to have some scripture up in front of you today. But, but before we do that, I want to back up into why he's kind of railing and why he's being so direct to this church. And it has everything to do with the name of this church, which might be one of the coolest names ever, Grace Covenant. Like I know it's probably numb to your ears and maybe numb to your hearts, but... I've never gotten to speak at a Grace Covenant church. It might be the best name ever for a church. Well, Paul's issue here, as you can imagine, was grace. See, grace is one of those things, maybe at this church, because you're named Grace Covenant, maybe it's one of those things you all really harp on a lot here is what is grace. But for a lot of people, it's kind of an ambiguous thing. In Acts chapter 11, we're not going to flip to it. You don't need to. But Barnabas saw the grace of God being lived out by men in Cyprus and Cyrene. And the Scripture says he was glad and then in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas urged, urged the Jews and devout converts to continue in the grace of God. And then in Acts 20, Paul describes his ministry as testifying to the gospel of grace. So when we back up in this book of Galatians, let's watch his train of thought. Before, it's kind of just an intro to our scripture that we're going to sit on today. In, in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, or verse, into verse 2, he says he's writing to the churches of Galatia. So we know that. He's writing to these churches. So this wasn't written to us today, but it was written for us. Uh, in verse 6, he starts out with, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, you, him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there's the issue. Paul says, I'm, I'm blown away by you people, that you were called by the grace of Christ and now you're turning to something different. And he begins to describe what that is. At the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's kind of telling what he's been doing and where he's been going and why he's been doing that. But in verse 16 of chapter 2, he picks up. In verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's really starting to unpack this and say, hey, look, people, you've deserted this gospel of grace in Christ. And now you're beginning to add something to it. But, but you and I both know, he says, we're not justified by works of the law. We're just about justified by faith. In verse 19 of chapter 2, he keeps going forth through the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then his famous verse here, what a lot of us know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Skipping forward, chapter 3, verse 1. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed what is vain? Does he who supply the Spirit in you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, then it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so let's stop here for a second to think about what he's saying. He's really kind of being really direct with these churches, saying, okay, you've turned away from the grace of, uh, the grace of God through Christ, and now you're applying works towards it, and you're somehow thinking that you're pleasing God because of the things that you do. And then he refers back to Genesis 15 with God with Abraham. And if you know this story of the Abrahamic covenant, here's this old guy. Let's call him Abraham. God walks him outside at night and he says, hey, you see those stars? Try counting them. He says, now, you as an old guy, these stars appear. This, this is going to be like your descendants someday. This, your offspring is going to be like these stars. Even though you're old, even though your wife can't have kids, guess what? This, this is what this is going to be like. And Abraham looked at the stars and says, I believe you. And the scriptures say that it was credited to him as righteousness. So here in the midst of talking about law and of, you know, you think you maybe can do things on your own to, to please God. He's saying, look at how Abraham pleased God. He believed him, period. He looks at some stars and he says, I believe you, period. And then it keeps going. In verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel um, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So before Genesis 15 and Genesis 12, he basically says, here's my plan, Abram. After all this destruction, after a flood, after a tower of Babel, all these things in Genesis 3 through 11, in chapter 12 of Genesis, he says, here's my plan. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. That's my plan. So Paul has been doing this now for three chapters. He's kind of building to this massive point in this book, the main point that he's building to. He's been doing it chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And that main point is where we're going to start today. Before I tell you that main point, i got to tell you. I used to work at a ministry called Pine Cove. Um, I think that's how Matt knew me from out there. It's a large summer camp ministry based in Tyler, where we live. Uh, there's some camps in Houston with it and things like that. But, but that's where I was for a long time, and I was there. And uh, I got the privilege of teaching all of our summer staff about how we did things as a ministry. So we would rent out the University of Texas at Tyler's Auditorium. We had hired about 1,500 college students at the time. And over a period of two days, I got to stand on stage and teach through our mission, our vision, our philosophy of ministry, and how we did what we did. And inevitably, years later, I would see staff. I've seen them all over the country in random weird places, including walking up to the White House and a Secret Service guy saying, 
you used to work at Pine Cove. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. It was an old camper from Pine Cove, now a Secret Service agent guarding the White House. And, but the people who had sat through training with me for two days, they never came up to me and they never said, oh man, those points you made about this or that were so great. They would always remind me of something I did on stage. In the first two days, I would introduce my wife and I'd introduce my kids and I'd call them out one by one. We have five kids and so it took me a little while. But I would go one by one and I would say, this, this one right here, this is our oldest son. His name's Walker. And let me tell you why we named him Walker Lloyd. Middle name Lloyd after my dad to bless him. Because we felt like he was still waiting for a blessing from his dad that would never come. And so we wanted to bless him. And I would go by one by one by one through all these kids. Like, and I would ask him this question. Do you know Miller, my second son? Do you know why I love you? And in Bashful, in front of 1,500 people, he would say, because I'm your son. I go, that's right. I love you because you're my son. And I would look out into a crowd of 1,500 college students, and I would see guys crying throughout the crowd. There was something about that truth that I loved my son, I accepted my son, I spoke identity into my son, and my son was content, safe, and secure in his father's love that brought them to tears. And yeah, that's what Paul's building to right now. So let's actually show you a verse, and let's actually... Look at this. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 26, it says this. Actually, I'll back up into 23, and then we can leave that verse there. But it says this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. Huge pinnacle point he's, he's teaching these, these churches in Galatia, these building to is huge pinnacle point is this. We are all sons of God, which is huge. Huge implications, one of which he backs up to and he explains, okay, it started with a promise, then it went to Abraham. Then the law came, he says, in chapter 3, talking about the law. And the law, like the end of chapter 3 tells us, was like a tutor for us. And what I mean by the law is the Ten Commandments. The law system of living where you're doing right things, not doing wrong things. But what Paul knows is what he wrote to the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the, Paul, that the, the law ministers death and condemnation to us. It, like it walks around with us and it's telling us, you're not good enough. You know, you wanted to be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, guess what? You're not good enough. Look at this list. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You wake up on a new day and you're trying to prove yourself and the, law, and the law is constantly following you around saying, you're not good enough. You can never do what it takes to earn the status of being God. You can never do what it takes good enough, the law says. So the Bible, Paul describes it as the law was a tutor. It says, some translations use different words there. My translation uses the word guardian. The law was a guardian. Some translations use schoolmaster. That the law was like this little tutor that said, you're not good enough, Kevin. You're not good enough, Kevin. And then one day I realized, you know, God, I'm not good enough. And you are so good and you offer me forgiveness and life and grace and mercy. And just like an old guy named Abraham looking at the stars saying, I believe you. One time when I was 16, I looked at God and I said, I believe you. And the law has done its job. Paul tells us here in this book. The law has done its job because he says, we are all sons of God 
It does not say sons and daughters, by the way. We like to kind of throw that in to make ourselves feel, but it doesn't say sons and daughters. It says we are all sons, which is huge because Paul's point to even to women is, guess what? You have an inheritance also. We are all sons of God. So he starts off this book saying, who has bewitched you? You have turned from this gospel of the grace of Christ. You start trying to add your own things into it. He used the example of Peter and you're trying to add this and circumcision, all these rules and all this law type stuff. You're like, wait a second, let's back up. The law led you to Christ. Faith came. The law has done its job. We are all sons of God, which is huge. He continues in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, Paul's making the assumption here that people have been baptized. He isn't saying Christ plus circumcision. He had just been finished railing against Christ plus circumcision. He's not saying Christ plus baptism, that is. He's, he's making an assumption here they've been baptized. He's saying since you've been baptized and you've put on Christ, it's like a picture of putting on new, fresh robes, having been baptized. This is what we've done now. And then he reminds us as he keeps going here in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, according to the promise. This is huge here. He repeats this in Ephesians, uh, this, this either Jew nor Greek thing. Uh, Greek and Jew, he's saying there is none of that here. You know, Jews and Greeks were divided by a lot of things like ethnicity and religion and culture. And he's saying, guess what? This canyon between y'all, although it's immense, guess what? Christ has... Uh, filled that gap, that immense separation between y'all where, where Christ has died and has made a new people, a new self in the image of God, this canyon will not stop love and fellowship between Jews and Greeks. So he says here, if there is, there is no Jew nor Greek, he says, nor slave or free. And it's a reference to the deepest divisions of classes. And Paul says, for those who have died and risen with Christ, brother and sister are terms that replace this. Now, for us today, we don't really think much in terms of Jew and Greek we don't think in terms of slave and free. We don't think in terms of, as he says in Ephesians, barbarian, Scythian. We don't think in those terms, but we do think sometimes in these terms. We think an athlete or a musician. These secondary titles we like to use for ourselves. An American or a Chinese. A Republican or a Democrat. It's kind of getting a little bit close to home now, isn't it? That these are those secondary titles we put a lot of weight and a lot of emphasis on. And Paul's saying, hey, guess what, people? Where you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ, these secondary titles, they don't matter. He says, you know, here there is no LSU fan or Alabama fan or even an Aggie and a Longhorn. He says, where you've died and you've been hidden with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, that brother and sister replace all these terms. Now, in order to drive home this point, and this is all, this is what we're going to sit on. This is all part of my introduction I'll have you know here. We're going to hit eight points of the beginning of chapter four. Um, Paul paints a picture for us. And it's a picture that I think helps us understand what he's talking about. He says in chapter four, verse one through three, he says, I mean that the heir, so he gives us an example. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, 
When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. He wants to make sure we don't miss this, so he gives us this analogy that a child has no legal rights. They're under guardians, right? Until, there was a, until something happened. Huge thing that happened, but we'll get to that. Um, let me share with you a picture that I think will help visualize this for us. So Paul paints a picture as he begins to talk about this concept that helps us visualize this. And this, this, our, our family might help you visualize it as well. So this is our family. Um, it was only nine years ago that my wife and I were married with no kids. And, man, we had weekends away on Tuesday nights. <laughs> there were no, like, school nights. There, there, were no, there was no bickering in the house. Well, maybe there's a little bit of that at times. But um, there was no kids bickering in the house, maybe I should say. Um, and then nine years later, we have five kids under the age of nine. It's my wife, Stephanie, there. Um, our oldest on the very left, Walker. And then at the bottom, Miller and Madri, and then Hannah and Levi. Uh, we're asked primarily three questions about our family. When we walk through the mall, it's happened numerous times. It's a little bit weird and awkward, i got to be honest. But, but these are those three questions we, we get. And the, the, fir the first question is something to the effect of, um, are your new kids or are your these kids, or they don't really know what to call them, so like, you know, these other kids, um, are they biological siblings, which is a, it's a natural question. Like, no, the answer is no. They're not biologically siblings. Then it gets really awkward. Because then we've been asked many, many times, are our daughters twins? That's just weird. Like, I don't even get that. When they ask, I kind of look at them and I, and I stare back. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how to make you not feel okay about asking that question. Like, I don't, even know, I don't even know what to say. It's just awkward. And so the, the answer is kind of like, oh, oh, our daughters? No, 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 they're not twins. You just kind of play it off and act like it was a good question. So we say, no, they're not twins. And then we've been asked uh, many times, um, are, are we a daycare? We, we've been asked that. So if you back up 12 years, 13 years, 12 years ago, my wife started talking about adoption She's been wanting to adopt since she was 12 years old. And um, me being the super spiritual person told her no. And so um, <laughs> um, I, I had grown up thinking that adoption was a crazy thing and that why would people do that? And so I just told her, I said, you know, why would we do that? Like, you know, if we could have kids biologically, why would we do that? Like, I don't even understand. And um, she says I said something. I don't think I did. I'm far too spiritual to say something like this. But she says that I said, we're not going to adopt and don't pray that God changes my heart on this. Now, I don't think I said that. Um, but she says I did, I'll tell you that apparently. But th so through a series of events, she kept talking about adoption. I kept talking about my spirituality and why we shouldn't adopt and all this type of stuff. So then I kind of met her halfway and I said, I'll tell you what, how about we choose a kind of a less permanent version called fostering? How about we just do something less permanent? And so uh, we decided to do that. I had seen in the scriptures, I knew that God referred to himself and his title, being the father to the fatherless. I knew that he was a protector. I knew that, that he was our refuge that we could go to in times of trouble. I knew all that. Um, but as we talked about adoption, it, just, it was just too mind-shattering for me. In the, me in the meantime, we're having biological kids. Um, 
But the, the issue just kept coming back up. She never brought it back up, but it just kept coming up, it seemed like. And so on February the 7th, 2011, this little boy arrived at our house, um, Devin Patrick Smith, Jr., uh, he was born, um, I don't know, eight or nine pre weeks premature. Um, his mom had HIV at the time. Um, his parents were kind of recreational drug users, and, and they voluntarily gave him up at the hospital. And so they called us uh, after the, he had been in the hospital for six weeks and said, hey, there's a boy here. Um, and, and I, candidly, I Googled HIV. I didn't know much about I mean, I had heard of it, obviously, but I didn't know, could, you know, my whole family die in a week or so. I mean, what's going to happen here? And so we researched that thing, and then uh, he came to our house um, that year, and uh, it was a pretty big thing for us. Then August 23rd, that same year of 2011, this little girl came to our house. Her name is Iana Amar Unique Webb. Um, this was the, the, day that, the night that she showed up at our house. She was distraught. She had been pulled from her remaining family. Um, she came from a background that was terrible that involved abuse and drugs and murder and all sorts of things that were happening around her. Her family had disintegrated. She was ripped out of her mother's or her friends of her mother's arms and brought to a scary new place. And, um, and we just knew that God was up to something. So we took a picture on, a, on an old crummy iPhone 3, I think, or something like that. She had thrown up on herself on her dress. Um... I didn't know what I was doing. We already had three kids running around. And, but there in our front yard, we just said, you know what, God, we think you're doing something that's just wild. And so we said, hey, would somebody take a picture of us real quick? And so there with Devin Patrick Smith Jr. and Iana Imar Unique Webb, we accepted them into our home. We received them into our home. This is a picture that Paul gives us here. In Galatians chapter 4, let's keep looking. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, um, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul's point to them is like, guess what, people? You've been adopted. You've been adopted as sons, he's telling these churches in Galatia. So who has bewitched you, he says. You foolish Galatians, you've laid on this gospel of the grace of Christ and you've picked up the law, this legal system of living of like, I'm going to prove myself to God. Just like maybe you or I do every day right now. God, I'm going to prove myself to you. I'm going to have so many quiet times this week. I'm not going to, to drink or cuss today or I'm not going to do these different things. I'm going, to, I'm going to prove myself to you, God, so that you love me today. And Paul's saying, what's wrong with you people? Don't you understand that God gave Abraham a promise? Abraham believed him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And guess what? 430 years later after this promise, he gave us the law that would tell us, you're not good enough. You need something bigger than you to be made receivable. But once you've put your faith in Christ, he says, that, that legal way of living, that, that law system, it's done its job. And great news, you've been adopted, he says. So there's my intro. We're going to talk about eight quick points now. 
about what we can learn from adoption through these verses. So in verse 4, we see this. The first point is adoption is planned. In verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. See, when we were preparing to have these kids, you have to think of things like vehicle size. Because we were proud owners of a minivan, but it was a Honda Odyssey, which didn't seat as many people that we needed. And so we had to go to the Toyota Sienna. But my wife and I were sitting on the front porch one day, and and she says, "Um, why don't we get a 12-passenger van? Now, forgive me if this is any of y'all, but I know that it's only weird families that drive 12-passenger vans. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I said, no, we're not going to buy a 12-passenger van. We are not going to buy a 12-passenger van. And then my wife looks at me and she says, what, are you going to let the size of our vehicle limit the size of our family? So I had a response for her, though. I said this. I said, well, why stop at a 12-passenger van? Why don't we just buy a school bus then? And then she started crying, and then I felt really bad. (laughs) So the scripture says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Um, It was the perfect time. It shouldn't have happened any earlier, any later. It was the perfect time. It had been pre-planned. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. Ephesians 1 tells us that Paul says, Before the foundation of the world, he, he predestined us for adoption as sons. It was in God's good, sovereign grace that he planned for you and I to be adopted as well. Point number two, also out of verse four, uh, is that, that adoption requires the proper credentials. You see, they come to your house and they do something called a home study and they ask you a gajillion questions and they, they require you to have like a fire evacuation plan posted on the side of your refrigerator, which is one of the weirdest things ever, and all sorts of different things is part of your home study. And I remember them asking us questions and thinking like, oh gosh, what are they going to ask me if they ask if I've ever been to jail? It's like, yes, but that was in high school and it was for speeding and I'm I'm not the same person anymore, I promise you. But you know what? God had the proper credentials as well. He was divine. He was human, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons it says. It's the whole reason why Jesus came. It's the, it's the whole reason for the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. It's so that we could receive justification and salvation. There's a bunch of yuns there, but that's what it is, so that we can be a son. And this is why also in the midst of our pluralistic culture that we live in, why we seem so close-minded to think that Jesus is the only one in that God-man category who has the right credentials to pull this off. Third point, adoption is expensive in verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons, it says. See, Jesus was able to pay this. He was born under the law. He lived perfectly under the law. He could actually purchase this thing called adoption. Um, For anybody who in this room has ever gone through the adoption process, It can be expensive, especially adopting internationally. It's one of those things that just adds up and up and up. But you know what? Jesus came, and it cost him his life. It was rather expensive. Fourth point, adoption. It's a form of rescue. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It was like 
as he came, I, I think back to our calls we've gotten. We've had about 16 or so foster kids come through our house. And the foster call is not what I expected it to be. It's our first phone call came at midnight. And it was, they called and said, hey, we have a baby for you. And, and we're like, well, can we pray about it and call you in the morning? We're just going to pray. And they said, we need to know. Like right now, there's a, do- there's a little girl sitting in our, in our office. And we, we began to understand this. Well, in August, uh, we were picking up our son from school. And, 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 uh, and the phone rang on the way home. We were celebrating our, our son finishing another day of kindergarten, which apparently for him was a really tough deal because every day he was in tears. And so we all picked him up like, you made it. And then our cell phone rings. And they said, hey, um, we don't know if you saw the news last night, but we want to, uh, there's, a, there's a girl who's in our custody, um, and we want you to take her into your home. And, uh, and I remember we were, Steph and I were talking, we're like, we did see the news. It was of a girl uh, the day before, or two days before, who uh, hit her and her twin sister had, had woken their dad up from a nap. And he got so frustrated that he brought one of his daughters in the front yard and beat her up so badly that she died that day. And he lied to the police and told me he had fallen down some stairs and landed on top of her and an autopsy was done. And then once the autopsy was done, it shows that she had just been, her body was just totally um, broken. And so they pulled this, this little girl from the place that she was, the, the surviving twin, and they called us. And the phone call is one of those weird phone calls where you get when they called and they said, hey, look, we have this girl. We don't know if you saw the news. We said we did. They said, look, we want, we want to place her in your family as a foster girl. That wasn't a new phone call. Like, okay, well we, can, well, we can pray about that. We can call you back in just a minute. And they said, oh, but here's the thing. Her dad will probably be executed. Her mom has flipped out and kind of gone off the deep end. And so we don't want you to take her unless you're willing to adopt her. And then they said, and we need to know in five minutes. That was the phone call. And I remember hanging up thinking, how do you say yes to a child for the rest of their life? I mean, I'm thinking, what if, what if she doesn't like me? What if she's a bully to our kids? What if, and candidly, I'll be totally honest with you, I remember thinking one of the things I thought was, what if she's ugly? Like, what if she's just this ugly little girl who's mean and who doesn't like me? And we all of a sudden say yes to this little girl for the rest of her life. We get home, we circled up our family, and, and we asked our kids, we said, hey, look, there's a little girl who needs a home, and what do you think? And our kids said, Dad, we have to do it. We have to do it. And so we called them back, and we said yes. Next point. I'll come back to that. Point number five, verse five. Adoption is received. In John chapter 1, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, came, he gave the right to become children of God. We receive Christ by faith. Our kids didn't do anything to earn their adoption. I didn't even see our daughter ahead of time. It was something they received. See, I remember the day, here's the picture of it, that we got to uh, stand before Judge Clark in Smith County. And I remember that day that she got off the bench. Notice this biblical picture here without even intentionally doing it. She got off the bench and she came to the front. And she said, let's all circle up. We had like 40 or 50 friends and family there. We all circled up and she said, okay, grab him. Let me see these kids over here. And she brought, oh, look at you. What's your name? And she said, Iana. Iana, do you know who this is? That's mommy. That's daddy. That's Walker. That's Miller. That's Madri. And she went through all these things. 
Devin Patrick Smith Jr., Iana Imari Unique Webb. I remember she asked them a question that was something like this. Do you want to be adopted? Notice the biblical picture here. Do you want to be adopted is the invitation to us throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Do you want to be adopted? And luckily they both said yes. And then she says this. It's the good news of the gospel, right? One moment, they're not our kids. They're just living in our house. The next moment she says, I I want you to know, by the power vested in me in the great state of Texas, she said, I hereby declare you to be the son and the daughter of Kevin and Stephanie East. And, notice the biblical picture, and I hereby change your name. Iana Imar Unique Webb, she said, your new name is Hannah Joy East. Hannah Joy, Grace Joy East. Devin Patrick Smith Jr., your new name is Levi Kevin East. Levi in the book of Malachi says, he will be my messenger. Kevin, I had to give him my name, right? He kind of looks like me anyway. (laughs) Point number seven. Adoption allows for intimacy, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, crying, Daddy. The first night that Hannah got to our house, she saw me tickling my boys, and she broke out screaming in tears, terrified. And I was like, oh, no, no, it's fun. Ha, ha, ha. Like, we're tickling. Ha, ha, ha. It's fun. Ha, ha. A year later, I remember the look in her face. I took a picture and put it on Instagram when she's yelling, tickle me, daddy, tickle me, daddy. And I was like, we are in a new place. That adoption allows for intimacy where the spirit of God within us allows us to cry, daddy, to God himself. Here they are. There's our little Hannah. Yeah, she's beautiful. Our little Levi. Bible in hand, he will be my messenger. He has his little blue Bible he loves to carry around. Our last point here, point number eight, adoption creates something new. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans chapter five tells us, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. When we we put together our statement of faith for the ministry I work at, we changed the word a year later because it says it doesn't say we'll be called righteous. It says we'll be made righteous. And we changed that one word, recognizing what Romans chapter 5 tells us. We've been made new people. So for us, my question to all of us today is, um, what do we do with that? Maybe for some of y'all, you walked in here today, and if I would have asked the question, which I probably should have, do any of y'all have any experience with adoption? A few of y'all would raise your hands. Maybe as I now ask that question, you would all say, oh, yeah, I've got experience with adoption. But one of the last things I want to tell you is the whole point of the Scripture is that love, grace, mercy, and adopted love that allows for intimacy was never meant to terminate with us. See, remember he told Abram in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great, comma, so that you will be a blessing. You see that love, grace, mercy, that adopted love that's poured into us. He says, now, now you be a conduit of that to other people. You be grace dispensers on this earth to people. So maybe God has for you to someday adopt. I don't know. What I do know is he's called us all as sons of God to be grace dispensers on this earth. 
And I hope for you today, as we looked at Galatians 3 and 4, this would be a great reminder. One, if you're trying to earn his love, stop. You'll never do it good enough. Put your faith in Christ and receive adoption as sons. And secondly, as adopted sons, be grace dispensers on this earth of that love to other people. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for a time to be here at the people of Grace Covenant. And Father, I'm grateful for those two words. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of your grace and of your covenant that you've made with us. Father, I pray for the simple story that an example that Paul uses there in Romans or in Galatians chapter 4 and pictures of my kids and family that maybe for these people here would be a great reminder, a great truth for them to understand that they can receive adoption as sons and then, Lord, they can quit trying to earn your favor and instead they can just receive it. They can walk in it and that, Father, they can dispense your favor, your grace, your love, your joy, your peace to other people, Father. That's our prayer today, Lord. We ask together in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.